Hey, I'm Luke Burgess, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Boy, oh boy, this conversation has been a long time in the making. I've wanted to have it. I get to have it. And it's all about the desire of having this conversation that led it to come to life. There was nothing going to stop me from talking to Luke Burgess about his book, Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. We get into the the idea of need versus want. We get into... uh, one of the things you can do to kind of stave off the the power of mimetic desire so you don't end up doing things you don't want to do there's so many things we get into we could have talked for far longer but here's what we did talk about listen to it here's our productive conversation my productive conversation with luke burgess here you go luke thanks for taking the time to join me today and have a productive conversation with me one i've been looking forward to having for a long time me too thanks for having me on mike The book is called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. I'm going to do a rote question right out of the gate because some people are going to go, what is mimetic desire? So mimesis or mimetic is a fancy word for imitate. It comes from the Greek word that means to imitate, think mimic when you hear that. And it means that we mimic the desires or we imitate the desires of other people, usually without knowing it, uh, usually while convincing ourselves that our desires are entirely sort of manufactured out of some secret desire chamber inside of ourselves, uh, when in fact uh, the nature of desire is social. And we're always taking cues about what other people want, and it shapes our perception of value. It shapes our very desires as well. Okay, so right out of the gate, I want to get into imposter syndrome because I think that that <laughs> that that nature can really lead towards this concept of imposter syndrome, which is not just a concept, it's a legitimate thing. So if someone is struggling with, and of course you go through, you know, a bunch of tactics in the book as well. Like there's, there's 15, we're going on, yeah, there's 15 tactics in the book, um, right out of the gate, but it's, it's a deep read, uh, to the point where I even admitted fully transparent that it it's, I'm still working my way through it. Um, imposter syndrome, what, does mimetic desire how do, how do those things first off how does how does it affect it and secondly if someone re- knows this how do they kind of counteract it because i think that it can be a very very powerful force that can really paralyze people well i mean the first thing to understand about imposter syndrome is that we're always projecting things onto the people or groups that are making us feel like an imposter that simply aren't true uh, you know we're we're ascribing all kinds of qualities of being and superpowers and you know imagining that these are not people that that have problems that we don't even know about mm-hmm. right um you know and and they may be doing the same thing to us um you know it's funny simon sinek told a funny story of of a of a fellow author that he felt like he was a real rival to and he he felt sort of like an imposter to this author and then they happened to be placed on the same stage together and uh and he sort of opened up and he said you know the best way that i could probably deal with this is just to be honest so he said you know um uh, I forget what the author, the other, who the other author was. He goes, you know, I I feel like a real imposter around you. You know, I I just I just think that you're so successful, and I'm I feel like I'm always trying to keep up. And I just wanted to tell you that. And the other guy turns to him and goes, you know what? I felt the same thing about you. And they just they had this like water, like this watershed moment. So you know, I think that transparency, like we often don't talk about our desires. We don't talk about 
um, our insecurities. And in my life, at least, being open and transparent about them uh, has often just led to this feeling of relief and freedom when I realize that other people are just like me. Often when I talk about productivity and I talk about, I, I bring up Maslow's hierarchy of needs quite a bit because I think sometimes what our, our, the primitive part of our brain, like the older part of our brain is, is more than happy to stay in stage one and stage two. Like, let's just survive. Let's just be secure. And then when you get to like the next level, level three, which is more about, you know, like the idea of relationships, which is where I think the threshold starts to shift a little bit, then four and five, four is esteem, five is self-actualization. I'm not a big fan of saying like, I have to do something like it's, I need to do something, but there's a want the, when does a need become a want and when it, cause I, I often bring this up to people and when are they mutually uh, like, is there a point where they become one in the same, like need and want kind of exist uh, together and it's hard to kind of separate, Oh, this is something that is a need of mine versus this is just something that's a desire. And I need to try to kind of unpack it a bit. I think that it's very there there's a fine line and the and the lines are and it's very blurry. Um many things have an element of need and desire combined. There's not like this point at which there's a clean break. One way to think about it though would be you're sort of identify need. If you say that you need something, like you're thirsty and Luke, I want a glass of water, and I hand you a glass of tap water uh from my kitchen, and you say, Well, Luke, I was really hoping that I could drink Aquafina or Voss. Well, then that's clearly not just a need. Like if it was just a need, then you would drink whatever water I gave you to drink. Right. Um, and we live in a world now where even water has become a matter of desire. We've got all different kinds of brands of water that we can drink. So it seems like we've um, – 500 years ago, there was probably just a lot more need for most people in the world thinking about survival, getting enough food and drink and warmth um, just to get by uh, in a – world of abundance, especially for, for a lot of Americans and Canadians, um, we spend most of our life not spending most of our time so concerned about meeting our daily needs and just getting overwhelmed with all of the different desires um, that are modeled to us from every corner uh, of the world. Social media, we can see what people on the other side of the world are desiring and wanting. And I think we've spent a lot more time of our time in the universe of desire than we do in the universe of needs. So let's 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 break it down a bit. You wrote this book. Was that a need or a desire for you? <laughs> uh, I think it was. Uh, I think it was both. And the funny thing about when you feel like you have to do something, and I think a lot of creative projects feel that way. It's almost like I have you know I have to like give birth to this thing inside of me, and if I don't, I'm just going to go crazy. So it certainly felt like a need at a certain point. Um, but there's a whole lot of desire that was involved in the first place. Like why write a book, right? I'm sure right. there was a lot of mimetic desire involved in that. You know, I could have just, you know, done this on my own. Why publish it? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think that again, I think that desires and desires can appear like needs and needs can appear like desires and sort of, there's some phase transition that we go through, uh, and just understanding and just being attentive to, you know, 
when when does something feel like a need and is it really a need or is it a desire and sort of questioning ourselves because we always convince ourselves that we need something like that's why i've bought 99 percent of the things that i've ever bought in my life is did because buy, did you buy a new laptop did you buy one of the new apple laptops that came out the other day i, I did only because <laughs> the, the one that i had had a broken graphics card okay and it my graphics card broke three months before i heard that the new ones were coming out and i couldn't quite bridge the gap Right, right. So it was a need, but again, like you said, like oh, I need a new computer, and someone hands you a new computer. You're like, no, 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 no. I need the new Mac. Uh, I need the new Mac. Why do I need a MacBook Pro with X amount of RAM, way more than I I probably use? Uh, As you go through the book, um, you've divided it up really into well, I would say even three parts because the tactics you have a separate list of tactics that you kind of. So it, it allows people to kind of go, I want to get tactical right out of the gate. Um, but a lot of time is spent on that power of mimetic desire. Like, I mean, th- I would say that, I mean, it's divided up, you know, you look at the eight chapters and such. Um, how important is it for people to understand that power of mimetic desire so that they can start to leverage it? Because you spent, I mean, again, I think that when you go through, no one really when I started to go through the book, I'm like, I didn't realize that some of this stuff was happening. Even though I, I consider myself to be a pretty aware person and I like to think that I have clarity and focus, I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah. So that was that part of it is like, you know, there's this stuff sneaks up on you. You're not really totally hyper aware of it. And then the second phase is here's how you could be vigilant, right? Exactly. Well, just to be clear, when you said you you weren't able to get through it, it's not because it's so hard to read. It's because there's a lot there. Huh? Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, what did I say? It's not. It's um, not a. It's not an. So, it's it's a challenging read because there is so much there. It's not. There. It's not because oh my god, this book is super thick. I mean, it's not. It's not War and Peace. It's not. You know, it's not. It's not sharing. It's it's like wow. There's a lot here to unpack. Right. Well, I mean, I spent the whole first half of the book just explaining what mimetic desire is and how it works because I felt like I needed at least half of the book to do that before we can even get into, you know, well, what do we do about it? How do we live in this world? So yeah, what it is and just having an awareness of it is is crucial. And it's why I drive the point home for, you know, about 150 pages Um, because there's something about us that wants to kind of deny um, our social nature and this idea that our desires are generated and shaped, um, largely in our relationships with other people. Like we think of ourselves as independent and autonomous and, you know, that's a good thing. Um, You know, we're self-reliant and I live most of my life like that, right? Like everything that I do, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out on my own, Uh, not having been aware of all of the hidden influences that had been shaping my desire from a young age, starting with my parents. So, you know, I was like, I, I can't give enough examples of this from, you know, childhood to adolescence. I mean, high school is like hypermimesis. You know, you enter into high school and it's like now all of a sudden you're, you're surrounded by people that are kind of very similar to you and people that are more similar to us. We always are more concerned about and measure ourselves against way more than we do, you know, people that are sort of separated from us by some kind of social space, right? Like if you ask most people who they're more jealous of, Jeff Bezos or like the person that works with you in your office who has a similar role and maybe lives in a slightly nicer place or something like that, it's the second person for everybody, right? right. There's there's something about proximity that really matters to us. And that has everything to do with mimetic desire because we're, we're looking for models 
that that help help us understand what it is that we want. And if somebody is important to us and they all of a sudden start gunning for a certain job or they want to move to a certain city, all of a sudden, you know, that job or that city or that person that they're pursuing takes on a different value to us. It's almost like it's magically, you know, transformed and and we perceive it differently because they want it. And that's the power of mimetic desire. And this is happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Like every second of our waking lives, we're, we're taking in cues from social media, from our friends, from our family, from what we watch on the news. And um, that's why I sort of try to drill home in the, in the whole first half of the book. Like before we can talk about this, I need to convince you that it's real. Right, right. You know, as as we were talking about this, I couldn't help but think of professional wrestling. And you're like, wait, why? <laughs> Hold on a second, Mike. And and it, I think this what I needed to do because I'm I'm a, I've been a fan of pro wrestling for a long time, and I didn't really talk about it because it was kind of the thing that. And I've actually listened to a few interviews from professional wrestlers. Adam Cole is one that's he's a member of All Elite Wrestling, and his podcast interviews he says. I was a wrestling geek. Like I was, you know, I was not a wrestler, but growing up, I was a wrestling geek and I wore wrestling t-shirts and I was the guy that, that, you know, made sure everyone knew that that's what that was. I'm like, man, you must've been like, you would have had to really find like a few people. And, and I guarantee you, I would imagine at least, but it'd be a safe bet that there's people that were not wearing those wrestling t-shirts that felt the exact same way as you. And I've often said that pro wrestling fans fall on like there's a there's a general idea of what a pro wrestling fan looks like and what a pro wrestling fan does not look like. And I didn't think I mean, I don't think I fit the mold of what most people think a pro wrestling fan looks like. And I found a couple other guys that I know and actually several more online that also feel the same way. But we were kind of quiet about it Um, when it comes to like mutual want, mutual you know desire amongst a group of people. And yet there's a quietness to it. Is that something that like you see happen as you went through the book that you, you saw happening with groups of people like, oh, I'm going to be quiet about this because yes, I feel the same way. Yes, I want the same things, but it's not mutually understood or accepted that we should feel this way or we should want these sort of things. Yeah, I mean, we see that in relationships, even with just two people that are in sort of a, a – that are courting one another or in a romantic relationship. Um you know, there's always this idea that I can't sort of out of our insecurity, like I can't show how much I want this other person too soon. I can't come on too strong. Right. It's kind of the same. It's the same idea just on uh, with two individuals. Um, so when you get in groups, uh, that, of course, happens until one person sort of steps forward and expresses a desire. And the amazing – and I see this. I, one of the hats I wear is as a professor at a business school. Um, you, you know, it just takes one student to sort of speak up and challenge me and say, you know, Professor Burgess, I don't understand what you're saying. And then pretty soon, like, everybody does. There's like this cascade. So desires are contagious. That's one of the points in the book mm-hmm. is that we are affected by other people's desires um, and they, they move through groups extremely quickly. And that's why consensus can form really, really quickly in, 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 a, in a group. 
um, and can lead to mob mentality and things like that. Like, has everybody actually arrived at that conclusion through independent thinking or did it just take somebody to express a strong desire or accuse somebody of something um, for us to just kind of adopt that desire on our own? So that's one of the big warnings in the book is like, we are affected by what other people want and we can bring a level so we can just do like passive acceptance and many people just go through life passively sort of accepting the circumstances that they're in or do we exercise our agency and our freedom and and are intentional about what it is that we're that we're giving our our stamp to is there a way to figure out whether something you desire i'm asking this as a general is is the wrong thing to desire So up front, oftentimes there's not. Okay. Um, you know, I think part of the adventure and beauty of life is that we do have to move forward. Um, I'll just use the word faith. You know, we, we have to have some trust and, and, and move forward and take, take some steps. And then at some point later, we look back and we realize that, you know, this is it's revealed to us kind of, you know, that this was a fulfilling desire or not, but there are usually signs along the way if we're, if we're paying attention. And in some cases, I think the signs are all there right up front. Like we, we may not have a hundred percent confidence, but the signs are there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've had some big decisions in my life and they seemed like they were really hard decisions to make. I was totally torn. I mean, I have a hard time making a lot of decisions. I have menu anxiety when I go to a restaurant with my wife, we both do. But so, but I've, I've had like major career sort of vocational questions too that seemed, um, impossible to make. I felt totally paralyzed until I do an exercise like the deathbed exercise where I, I, I really as seriously as I can put myself in that place and say, you know, Luke, if you look back in your life, um, which desire, which thing would you have been, um, sort of more satisfied to have pursued? And when I do that, um, all of a sudden, the choice didn't didn't look so hard anymore. It actually seemed silly that I was struggling so much with it. So there is something to be said about stepping back and gaining some perspective. And in that sense, I do think we can discern uh, which desires are going to leave us fulfilled and which ones aren't. You bring up the point of attention. And I think when it comes to productivity and time management, people think more about, oh, I've got to get as much done as possible. The measurement stick of productivity is achieving a lot, but then there's a lot of people left wanting, like, did I do the right things? Like, were these the right things to do? So uh, I'm, I'm curious, knowing the pace and cadence of what people have, and I'm, I'm going to use a generic term, like what productivity has seemed to be, which is get stuff done, get to inbox zero, do all the things. Does that, how does that impact someone's ability to pay attention to those signals of, yes, this is something that I really want and not fall prey to say the power of medic desire that you may not want to fall prey to. Well, what good is it to run really fast and to make a lot of progress toward a goal? Um, that's the wrong goal. Mm. Like we talk a lot about how to achieve your goals, but not a lot about how to actually select the right goals in the first place, right? The ones that are going to leave us satisfied. Um, so you know, I interviewed a chef in the book, um, Chef Sebastian Bra, who'd had three Michelin stars at his restaurant in France for uh, well over a decade. 
and he was working so hard, he was extremely productive and maintained those stars every single year until at one point in his life, he had a wake up call and he was like, what am I doing? This is, I don't even want these things. And he told the Michelin guide just not to come back to his restaurant. He said, I don't even care about your stars anymore. I remember that um, story. Took, yeah. him a, took him a long time. It's 2018. Um, so for me in my life, I've had to be, uh, maybe this isn't the right way to say this, but I've had to be unproductive before I can be productive. Or another way to say that would be I need to sort of step back, engage in some silence. Um, I would call it productive silence, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like it's the, it's the setup. It's the, you know, even if it's the quiet five minutes that you spend with your coffee in the morning as you, as you think about your day, um, not just jumping straight into the productivity. It's sort of the, that essential step. And I, I try to take at least one week every year. I've been doing it for about 10 years now where I take a silent retreat. But there are, there are micro ways to do that too where we want to make sure that our productivity is, is going in the right direction, at leading us to where we want to go. And there has to be some non, I'll just call it non-productive sort of reflection um, to check our productivity and to make sure it's the kind that we want to be doing. As you made your way through the book and you went through the process of writing it, of course, we get to the, the, the second part, which is like, here's how you can tackle this. The tactics that you came up with and that you discussed in the book, which one was the one that you were perhaps most surprised by that you're like, oh, this might this this is the one that I think will do more good than I initially thought. Uh, you know, this one might be the most maybe more impactful than I initially would have given it credit for. The one that um, affected me the most and that I've gotten the, the most feedback on is uh, the tactic that is is about telling stories of deeply fulfilling action from your life. And before you can tell those stories, you just have to remember those stories. Mm-hmm. And that's easier said than done. Uh, very, like our memories are very fickle. Um, mine is, is fickle. Like I, I forget the times in my life when I was engaged in deeply fulfilling things. Like it's easier for me to remember some of the bad stuff, actually. Um, like that's like self-sabotage. Like why do, why is it easier for you to remember the trauma and the negative experiences than it was like the really good ones? We don't do that enough. We don't ask each other about those things. So it almost requires an intentional effort to go back through our lives and to mine our lives for those times. And everybody has them when we were engaged in the state of flow, when we were at peak productivity, when we lost track of time, we were doing something that was deeply satisfying, that brought us this deep sense of joy. It doesn't have to be a huge professional accomplishment. It could be a dinner you made for your spouse. It could be anything. Um, pay attention to those things. And the reason that that's a tactic in the book is because it, this has to do with separating the, um, the highly mimetic, fleeting, what I call thin desires from the thick desires, like the kinds of things that have probably been important to you for a long time, maybe your whole life, that you, perhaps you've forgotten. So when I went through this exercise and I had a, a wise mentor that sort of did it with me, uh, it just like revealed a lot of things about myself that I, I sort of like pretended like I knew, but I didn't really have the language to explain them. And that storytelling exercise was absolutely instrumental. And since the book came out, I've walked a couple of dozen people through the same exercise and not a single one of them um, has told me that they didn't learn some surprising thing about their, their deeper desires that they'd probably lost touch with. Considering what you just told me, do you journal? Do you keep a journal now? Like knowing how your memory is and knowing how valuable that tactic is, is 
journaling something you do? And if is it, I know I do. I think it's a worthwhile thing because of the very thing you mentioned. Like, you know, like, uh, I, you know, I, here's a stupid thing that I really thought was cool and I want to make sure I don't forget it. Like, I, um, James Gunn has that new Peacemaker series that's coming out. And I know this maybe seem like trivial and, and, and silly. And I just shared the song because I found it on Spotify. And I said, thanks for the earworm, James Gunn. And he replied to me on Twitter, said, right? And I'm like, that was a cool moment. I want to remember that moment. Yes, it's a completely vapid, vain thing. But that would get lost in the annals of my memory, you know, or or it would act as a prompt to also discuss what else happened during the day that I might otherwise not have paid too much attention to. So is journaling something that you believe in? And even to that end, journaling about something as vain or silly as, you know, wow, a celebrity retweeted me or replied to my tweet. Um, do you think that that's an exercise that, that, yeah, for, that would be worthwhile to further or, um, you know, tap into this idea of, Hey, there's more to this than just that. And let me talk more about the story of my day as opposed to this single tweet that happened. Absolutely. Well, I don't think there's anything too trivial to, to, to note and record. If it's on your mind and you're thinking about writing it down, that means you need to write it down. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> there's, 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 there's nothing too trivial, right? It's on your mind for a reason. Yep. And you need to get it out. Um, you know, we write so that we can forget sometimes. Yep. Um, somebody yep. said that. I forget who. Um, but yes, the answer is yes, I do. And I've, I've never been very good at it. Um, I'm sort of, I'm not the most disciplined person in the world. My writings, people ask me about my writing method. Like, how did you write a book like this? Man, it is way less disciplined than anybody realized. <laughs> um, so, so, but I, for, for, for years, I, like, I, I just took massive amounts of notes in my iPhone because that was just the way that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a mess. Then I finally had a friend who uh, came out with a great product called the Monk Manual who sent me one. And I've, I've been using the Monk Manual now for I a while. It. I have it. Yeah, I've, yeah I've, I love the Monk manual i use so, it yeah it's fantastic so it's it's a fantastic tool and uh you know steve steve lawson who's the founder of the monk manual and i have talked about developing uh, a version of it um like sort of a desire journal so i i think it's really important to keep track of what you want i mean this sounds like a silly thing right but like if you understand the way that your desires have changed over the course of a week or a year um that's really important information you know like Last month, uh, the only thing on my mind was like, you know, moving to Austin. So everybody seems to want to do these days. Um, but, you know, that, but now, now it's not. Like that desire is gone. Well, what does that tell me about that desire? Maybe there was some sort of mimetic factors involved. Who was in my life at that time? Oh, it's because my entrepreneur friend was staying with me that week and it's all he talked about was Austin. Ah, so, and then you can begin to sort of refine and understand why you want different things in different seasons of your life or different times of the year. So before you go and make a big career change or something like that, you can sort of track, well, wow, I've been wanting to get out of this industry every single day for the last year. Hmm. You know, or I only journaled about that in January and I haven't journaled about it since. So maybe I don't really want to, you know, so there's, I think that that's an important part of the equation. So I'd encourage anybody that does journal is be super honest. I mean, just know every day, like, what did I want uh, most out of this day when I woke up and what did I want when I went to bed? 
that's a simple way to get started. You know, it's, 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 you bring up Austin. There's so much that I want to talk about here before we wrap up. So you bring up Austin, which brings- I'm not trying to knock, no, I'm not not, not knocking Austin. It's an easy target. No, but you also (laughs) brought up the monk manual. So I actually, every night I go through the monk manual. I also journal in an app called Reflection, reflection reflection.app by the the guys who made the whole Steam Manifesto, which I really like because it's an easy thing for, anything you can do to remove the friction from that, I think is powerful because not everybody's going to sit down and write it out. But I have the monk manual and I have my, you know, my daily driver, which I use for my own, because, you know, I have my own productivity stuff that I do. But I have what's called the evening examination, which I do every night to kind of reflect. And that comes, re- why am I mentioning Austin? How does this all connect to Austin? Because Ryan Holiday <laughs> lives in Austin. And it's a very stoic, like the Stoics did this evening examination. Well, back to wanting, the Stoics really tried to keep that out of their, their purview. So is... Adopting some of those reasoned approaches to things, because I think that's really what what stoicism comes down to is is it's it's the the delicate balance between emotion and logic, right? Where you have to try to kind of navigate it to a certain degree. If someone is thinking in terms of reason and st- like that, will I think help them against this you know power that that of mimetic desire? But I. I th- I wonder what your thoughts are on that that ideology of stoicism and, and leveraging that in that case. Because I know that Ryan has talked about stoicism. I mean, it's a very – speaking of career change, man, like he didn't start there. But boy, oh boy, has he gone down there. And it's been a great, great journey, a great ride to, to read and watch. Yeah. Well, well, so Ryan and I had a great chat um, about about this on his podcast. And I, you know, I think that, that stoicism has a lot to offer. But I mean, this that's um, – that idea of an evening examination um, also is – a long-standing um, spiritual tradition, right. going all the way back to the Desert Fathers in in, in Egypt, um, and, and even before that, probably probably long before that. But at least in Christianity, it goes all the way back to them. Um, so they, um, I, it's really important. And but I, there's only reason can get us so far, and then when it there's a certain point where discernment has to come into play, and I, sometimes desires have to be discerned. Right? They, they we can't. We can't use reason alone necessarily to know, um, you know, who we should marry, for instance, right. or some, or, or something like that. Right? There are some things in life um, where you know we have to discern our desires. Like, where is this desire coming from? What's my motivation here? Um, you know, it requires radical honesty with ourselves. Um, I mean, look, reason can come into play with questions like that too, right? I mean, there are some things that would just be. Um, would just be like stupid to pursue for just very rational reasons because they'll kill me or something. Um, but all else being equal, um, discerning desires and understanding where they come from and what's motivating us, I think is a, is a layer deeper. And, uh, it w- it's a layer that I think we can add to that, that eve- or the, I, I do an evening examination too. So it's like, a, it's a layer down that I can go like at the end of the day. So I want this thing. I, I want to pursue this new, you know, book idea or something like that. Why, what am I looking for? Right. Is it because I want to be the next Ryan holiday or is it because I have this, it, that's how I think writing actually helps me understand the topic more or something else, whatever. And if I can answer that question, then I've arrived at some discernment of that, of where that desire is, um, where it's coming from, and if it's ultimately going to fulfill me. Because if it's to try to like start a podcast and be more like Ryan Holiday is going to make me miserable. 
Yeah, it's empty calories, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, Luke, I want to ask, uh, I tend to ask this to every guest um, as we wrap up uh, each conversation because I want the listener to walk away with something actionable that they can do, like something tactical. And lo and behold, there's a whole section on tactics here that you can kind of go through. So if someone is going to, they pick up the book or they listen to this conversation, they're like, okay, Luke, I'm ready. What's one simple action I can take today that's going to help me, you know, with this idea of mimetic desire and, 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 you know, either leveraging the power or recognizing it or, you know, keeping it at bay. Um, what's one simple action they can take today to get started on that path? Simple thing you can do is take one sheet of paper and name 10 of your models, 10 people that influence what you want. And this is a really hard exercise. And you're going to divide the paper into two sections. Uh, one section, the top half are going to be for people that influence your desire that are outside of your world. Okay. This would be people that you don't have daily contact with, people that are dead, uh, people that are famous. Um, these are external models of desire. Okay. So like, you know, growing up, Michael Jordan was a huge model of desire for me. Um, I wanted to play basketball, but I'm only five, nine, but he, he would be an example of somebody that's in that external model of desire box, right? Try to find five of those. Those are going to be probably pretty easy to find. If you're honest, um, people that affect what you want. Um, they could be, uh, people in business, right? So I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, Steve jobs affects what I want a company to be like something like that. Um, and then the other, the other half of the paper are internal models of desire. These are people that are inside of your world. They're people that you have the possibility of coming into contact with, um, maybe not daily, but at least at some point, uh, they could be friends, they could be family, colleagues, it'd be people on social media, people that you, you do come into contact with people on social media, right? We can interact with one another. Um, and those are typically a little bit harder to admit. Um, the, but they're people that influence our desire. So these are the, the models of desire that are in the world that I call fresh manistan in the book because uh, it seems like we, we live in a world these days where we're all kind of freshmen again, uh, at least with social media. Yeah. So that's, that's one exercise. And if you can identify those 10 um, and, and the, the ways in which they affect what you want – um, maybe somebody that wants to move to Austin, I don't know. Um, you, you'll, you'll begin to have a, have a little bit better grip on, on what's influencing you. And then you can exercise your agency and decide if you want to lean into those desires or not. The book is called wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life. Luke, again, I'm making my way through it and there's so much, there's so much gold here. Where can people pick up the book and keep up with your work? Thanks so much, Mike. Um, you can pick up the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, from what I understand, hopefully your local bookshop has it. If they don't, please tell them to, to order it. Um, you can find it online. And uh, I write at lukeburgess.com. I publish a Substack at least once a week. So you can check me out there too. Luke, thanks for having a productive conversation with me today. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. Big thanks to Luke for joining me on the program today. I've wanted to have that conversation for a long time. The roots of time crafting are found in the ideas of needing to do, wanting to do, all that stuff. So the fact that wanting was something we could dive into was really special for me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. It's very easy to do. All you need to do is wherever you're listening to this podcast is hit the subscribe button. That way, if you want to listen to past episodes easier, you can. You'll be able to scroll through those archives and find conversations with Seth Godin, Chris Bailey, David Allen, 
Gretchen Rubin, Annie Duke, many, many more. There's over 400 episodes in the archives, but you also won't miss a single episode of What's to Come, including next week, where I speak with Michael Dietrich Chastain. We're going to talk about changes and change, and it's going to be a really great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, By the way, the other thing you can do, if you want to get deeper into the conversation that Luke and I had, you can go to the blog post that's associated with this episode. All you need to do is go to productivityist.com slash podcast 409. You'll find everything you need there. Finally, you want to support the show even further? Check out the sponsors. Not only the ones you heard on this episode today, who I'm very thankful for, but also some of the previous sponsors we've had. Just head to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to check them out. And if you check out those sponsors from that page, they'll know I sent you. That's it for this time around. Thanks for joining me on A Productive Conversation. I'm Mike Vardy, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.